Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 46, Final Fantasy VII, part 29, our final ultimate Ultima, Ultima weapon episode with Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Wes Shantz. How are you doing? Pretty good. It, yeah, the final episode of Final Fantasy VII here. Um, so, I know I told you that I wrote up a pretty extensive outline up here, and I did, and I, I intend to share it uh, at some point here, but the first thing I have to admit is that in fact, I did die on the final boss in the third iteration of him, and I need the listeners to know that that's true because I, I really did have a crisis of conscience earlier about whether I should even do this episode, having not defeated the final boss, even though as a young person I did defeat him quite easily because I had W summon and uh, auto cast life if I died and nights of the round, and I was incredible. But I have not put that much time into the game this time around. In fact, I was so weak that against the first two bosses, rather than having two or three teams, the game only made me have one team. And so <laughs> uh, I just wanted to put that out there. I did watch the ending twice, and I took extensive notes on it. And I don't intend to just give loser commentary here, commentary here but I can say some things about my strategy, and I'd like to know some things about your strategy going through here. But this final boss and this final dungeon, very, very hard no save points, and the only save point you get is the potential to corrupt your save file, according to Jagged. And so, well, Wes, welcome to this final episode, and I'm glad <laughs> that we get to be a team through this and that we get to keep being a team and that this very much does feel like our heyday. Yeah. Yeah, the save crystal is an interesting mo like thing to bring up as far as, like, you get to the very end of the game and there's this thing in there which presumably by accident, but maybe possibly on purpose, can corrupt your entire file and like, for, like make it impossible for you to uh, to ever leave the dungeon. I think is what it does. Like it it doesn't let you leave the the screen where the safe crystal is. Um, that's that's pretty nefarious. Uh, and yeah, the dungeon's hard enough as it is without all that nonsense. Um, I did I did actually beat it this morning. Congratulations, um, my, very good. My strategy is very simple. Like, I got tired of getting killed by random enemy encounters that, like, cast, like, automatic death spells on me. So I just started going through with Knights of the Round paired with uh, MP Absorb. So I would just cast that and get back, like, 800 MP, and it would just it would just end fights. And I, I, I used it on the third form of Sephiroth. I, I held off using it until then, but his third form is pretty annoying and and hard to fight so i let him cast a supernova once and then i was like okay this is this is too much i'm just gonna end this fight now so yeah if i if i've had that luxury or you know i call it a luxury but you earned it you bred the golden chocobo and you got that nice of the round and i didn't and his third form is very annoying in that it can cast uh it casts gravity style attacks and the interesting idea of gravity there is the relativity of weight and so regardless of what your HP is, it reduces it to one-sixth, I believe. No, to 6.25% of what it was. And he also has an attack that can reduce you down to one. And so he has an ability to reduce you down to size regardless of how big you've been. I think he also has a capacity to cast a D-spell as well as a wall too. So he's a pretty sophisticated opponent. But something I wanted to bring up before we even get into the two forms of Sephiroth and the Genova form before that with that sort of creepy naked woman on the front and those tentacles, yuck, um, was uh, a motif I mentioned to you on the pre-show of the downward spiral, right? Like the first screen when you're getting into the northern cave is very much like the screen that we had going downwards uh, in the steps 
towards the green light in the Shinra mansion. Uh, the steps around this sort of emanating green light in the northern crater looks very much the same. Um, and just to mention the theological virtues, because I'm a Dante teacher, is red means uh, charity or love, and it's based on the old idea of red as violence, and I think that's how red is used with meteor here, um, uh, not the opposite of charity. But green represents hope and white faith, and it, it, that will just be interesting later with holy and with the live stream joining it, and you'll see all three of those colors represented as the world is either coming to an end or being saved, but this idea of a downward spiral, like Jerion's flight downward um, into circle eight from seven, down into the circle of fraud, the bulges. And so we're going down to this deeper and deeper into this uh, cavern, and eventually we'll go deeper and deeper even into Cloud's Mind, where we'll find both a symbol of evil and a symbol of good, right? Holy will be there, as well as Sephiroth. And so I just wanted to bring up that idea of the downward spiral and the fact that we're going there. And there will later be a complementary upward spiral too after you defeat Sephiroth with a greenish-white sort of holy um, spiraling emanating up. And I, I, A, wanted to point that out and then B, see what you thought about that, Wes. Yeah, I, I definitely picked up on the echo between the Shinra mansion uh, basement, you know, and then the, uh, I guess it's the first screen mainly of the, the northern mm -hmm. crater where you, you were spiraling your way down. And and they sort of play on that motif of descent in various ways. There, there's another point later where you're actually like climbing down the back of a, a dragon yes. skeleton, right? And there's like, there's another point that it's kind of like you're on the outside of a cone that's upside down. So it's like inverted, but you're still going down, you know? Um, and of course, it's... It's not obvious that you can leave the northern cavern. Like, if you try to leave, it's it's not clear at first how to get out again and get back to the airship. But you can do it. But but again, it's like the game seems to want to convince you in lots of different ways that like this is the point of no return. Um, once you go into the nor the northern cavern, you're like you have to go all the way through, right? And that that seems to be very Dantean as well. That idea that you you have to go all the way to the bottom to, to ever start on your way out again. And when you do in, in the game, you know, like you said, it's, it's a different kind of spiral entirely. It's like a much more um, sort of multi-branching uh, and a lot like curlier somehow, right? They're like narrower and curlier and, and they're green. So they're sort of, you know, uh, the thing that's down there at the bottom and at the, the core is like emerging and spiraling outwards in lots of little tendrils and you're sort of like whisked away on it. Um, and, and it, you know, it's pretty awesome uh, the way that those, those spirals play into, like you said, when, when Cloud has his kind of return to his subconscious, right, to fight the final, final form of Sephiroth, you, you do like this very crazy spiral ride um, through <laughs> through a bunch of like tunnels almost so it sort of like turns it on its side and and has it you know manifested in all sorts of weird uh different patterns and things it's it's kind of a tour de force of the technology again like some of the graphics here at the end are pretty spectacular yeah and um literally what uh, as meteor starts to interact with the world as marlene looks out from her <coughs> her uh, calm window to see what's happening 
see this epic battle between evil and good taking place in a depersonalized way. Meteor sends down spiral tornadoes that are red, that are later, later replaced by um, holy and uh, then more particularly by the life streams, green tendrils sort of growing up. And that sort of um, struck to me the motif of like the good and evil motif that as well that um, something about what's good is that it's rooted in the earth and that it spirals upward, that it's the thought of the thing is based on the reality of the thing and the slow enduring creation of it. Whereas that which is evil in this world tends to be top down or that which is purely a product of the intellect that has less of a feel for the earth or what's, um, what's actually grounded in reality. That's, that's a point that Jung actually literally made about the Nazis. And what, well, what I think is interesting about that is, uh, is Sephiroth's attack supernova. So like, I just want to go through that attack for a second. So it is a gravity based attack that reduces you, um, to 6.25% of whatever your HP was and can potentially confuse you. And if you have a super powered cloud, like I do, relatively speaking, because obviously my team was very weak, like level 59 and uh, below, he then used slash all and killed the rest of my team. But what's interesting is just some of the imagery in there. First you get like these, these equations scrolling across the screen and you even get this like sort of Copernican world system image or Ptolemaic. Uh, I think it is Ptolemaic. I think I actually have that the same image that appears in the attack in my slides for Dante at the beginning of the Paradiso. But then this like force from outer space, which you might consider like the rational intellect or consciousness, um, shoots through all these planets into the sun, which then engulfs Mercury and Venus. I think it goes through Pluto, Neptune, um, maybe even a couple other planets. It's so long. It must be longer than Nice of the Round. He cast it twice on me. And then uh, this sort of it expands the sun and the sun explodes behind Sephiroth and down and hits you. Uh, so A, do you agree that that is like a symbol of the rational intellect? That B, the symbol of the rational intellect using its capacity to go top down and to do something terrible is truly what evil is, or at least what the idea of Satan or the devil is. And that uh, C, Sephiroth is supposed to represent that and does that well and that he has a safer Sephiroth with a horizontal halo behind him. And I think safer is probably one of those mistranslation issues where he's Seraph Sephiroth. Um, I, I, you know, I, would, I know that's conjecture, but I think that's pretty solid conjecture. Um, and he has one wing, too. I would also mention that I, when, I recall when I first played this game feeling Sephiroth a bit reduced by the fact that he had these alterations in this appearance. I really wanted to fight the Sephiroth with a sword. But... Um, yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask next, building on the spiral theme and getting into the perhaps even larger theme of, theme of good and evil. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, I mean, the, the kind of attack that he seems to use in these, in these last fights is like a lot of status ailments, a lot of um, things that are impossible to really defend against because what they do, yeah, is like, determine what your strength is and then uh you know cut it by a significant margin um not directly kill you necessarily but sort of like weaken you you know and and like cut you down um that yeah the the use of the um the sort of comet or whatever that 
that energy source might be um, to pass through or pass by all the outer planets and then to engulf the inner planets is a really it's, it's a really strange um, sort of like variation on whatever you know meteor is doing because um, yeah as it gets close to you it um, it actually works from the opposite direction right it like comes from somewhere outside of the solar system and then um, flies directly into the sun and then uses the sun you know its power against you so it's it's like perverting the the source of all good and all life right and and, and making it the source of destruction now and i think it has to be um in some sense it has to be referring also to the knights of the round right because there's like a series of things that happens each of them doesn't deal damage but it it is like destructive in each case in each little step of its way um it like blasts a hole through jupiter and it like you know destroys pluto entirely poor pluto is just gone um and and so yeah and and the length of it, right? The sheer length of the the cutscene, um, is 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 got to be up there with it. Uh, the way that it sort of engulfs Sephiroth himself too is really curious because all of your summons, your party disappears, right? You're not present when the summon is present, but in his case, he is there, and you know he seems to be impervious to whatever it is this attack is doing. I feel like it's you know it can't literally be you know, the sun expanding and engulfing you because that's preposterous that that wouldn't just like destroy the entire planet, right? And if he had that power, I guess he would have just, you know, done that probably um, <laughs> instead of all this elaborate stuff with Medio. But instead, I think it must be, you know, a kind of allegorical, alchemical, psychic, you know, representation of like what his power is. Um, and yeah, his, his embodiment as an angel but but a deformed one right a, a a kind of almost there angel that that seems to go along with that as well i mean you're fighting him in this like kind of celestial place right that's it can't be like what's actually down there at the bottom of the crater it's it's some kind of psychic landscape of i guess of his own you know creation that he he feels is like suitable for this this conflict uh it, it's pretty it's pretty weird, pretty messed up stuff. Well, that's interesting too, to what extent you're mentioning the fact that he confuses you. And that is actually how he ended up killing me. And the fact that his part of his power seems to be the power of illusion or delusion too, right? Like the Miltonian um, uh, Lucifer figure, especially from uh, books one and two of Paradise Lost, where he gives his delusional speeches to the angels, even though he's described as having faded glory and having ruined features uh though only having some remnant of the light back with him and that that seems to be part of sephiroth here too like you said the one-winged angel he's like in the character in the phaedrus who only has one wing and needs to conjoin with um another person to be complete but <clears throat> there is something incomplete about him as this as if he is simply a thought that wishes to be embodied but just, I, I think that point is so interesting that literally he can confuse you and that part of what his, um, part of the fact that he doesn't disappear before the solar flare like engulfs the earth, I think is supposed to also be confusing because it's like the power is delusional. It is, because obviously the sun, he does not have the power to make the sun explode. He, even his ultimate sort of 
Even the ultimate dark materia can't do that. It can just summon a meteor. And so the, the representation itself as so utterly brilliant is to dazzle rather than to enlighten. And so, like you said, it is an, a corruption of the symbol of the sun, which for Dante and the sphere of the sun is where the true educators are, Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure, who can maintain each other's perspectives and thus are true educators. They're unprejudiced. Um, whereas Sephiroth here uh, aggrandizes himself and he, he even lays out the equations for you to look at, right? How brilliant he is. He, uh, he shines in the final analysis over all things in order to dazzle your eyes as if you could never compete with something like that. And even before the fight, and I wanted to ask you about this, not just whether, whether you agree with that, but what you can, you know, what you can add to it and what do you see? Because he, he sort of holds you all. And one of the characters, I think it's Sid says, man, he's way out of our league. And I remember taking a lot of pleasure in that when I first played the game, because of course I was one of those Sephiroth fanboys. Um, but uh, how does how does that and the fact that he just restrains you connect with this attack and what his true power actually is? Is it delusion? What is it? Yeah, yeah, right. Before the fight actually starts, he has your entire party kind of held in a tractor beam, right? And you sort of like zoom in close to him and get pushed further out again. And it seems to be pretty painful for everyone. Uh, and and that's like a that's like a weird little you know, picture of the solar system, right? You're like, you're all the planets and, and planetary objects or, or the moons around the earth, right? Um, or in this case, sorry, he's the sun, you're the planets. Uh, that, yeah, that seems to be quite in line with his, his delusion, right? Like his chief aim is to aggrandize himself and basically become the... Uh, only right living thing, the most powerful living thing, and um, consume all of the life on the planet to to do that. Uh, it's obviously not the case that he is impervious, right, to damage because you you can eventually defeat him. Um, he's got some kind of again like psychic link or hold on on Cloud, particularly um, which. At, at the end, you know, proves to be his downfall because he he kind of holds on to Cloud last of all as everyone else is leaving and, and pulls him back in for this one-on-one, -on -one, uh, this final confrontation, uh, which is, you know, classic. And and it's it's like he has singled you out as his equal, finally, right? Um, not yes. like a, a mere satellite around his, you know, glorious, glorious son, but, but like this counterpart that he wants to, um, you know, crush utterly finally. And, um, and he's like laughing, right? That's what Cloud says before he gets uh, sort of spirited off to, to have that final one-on-one -on -one battle. Um, yeah, I think his, I think his power is, is a kind of allure, an attraction, a, a gravitational pull, which is, you know, tempting and um, ultimately self-destructive. Yeah, and I, I want to mention that, but you brought up something that I really want to talk about. So a couple of marquee parts of this, this uh, second, this last final battle. Finally, you're on firm ground with Sephiroth, and it looks like he's been doing his crunches in death because he's looking great with a. He doesn't have his. He doesn't even have his trench coat on, which I finally understood is sort of like in the martial arts movies, like the guy just takes the heavy thing off in order to fight 
uh, for real, but he's also exposed and vulnerable, even with his Masamune there. And um, again, you have a replay of the uh, the the eye scene, the and it it goes from your eyes to his eyes to your eyes to your his eyes, and it makes this sound like ching ching ching. Um, and it, that that's the same as um, when you had first found him with Genova. Though I'm not sure whether that was one of your delusional memories as Zach, but that was one of the marquee moments from the story that Cloud first told back in Calm so long ago. And in that scene, Sephiroth is literally standing above you still with a figure of an angel behind him, the, uh, the sort of robotic um, statue thing that is in front of, the, the effigy figure of Genova that stands in front of the real horrific Genova, who we haven't talked about yet, and uh, is a nude, creepy, feminine figure, even in this, uh, just as she was then. Um, but, um, but so you have this, this, this eye interplay again, and something interesting is that Cloud narrows his eyes as he's about to fight Sephiroth. So just as Sephiroth has stood above him and mocked him and tried to make him think that he is so much less than Sephiroth, so much so that he tries to be Sephiroth, and of course he can't be Sephiroth, he becomes himself, but what he then does when he fights against him is Sephiroth can still do you tremendous damage, like 7,000 damage or something like that if you have a 9,999 HP like I originally did, but you get to use Omni Slash on him. And just a couple things about that is it's many attacks from one, just like when he dies, um, many different balls of white light come up around you, like in Porco Rosso, Porco scene, the heaven of aviators, which is made up of many different aviators, as if an upward spiral towards heaven is made up of many good deeds or many good people doing many good deeds. But uh, also Safer Sephiroth does literally dissipate. He be goes from being a unity to a diversity. It's an de-unification or disunification but uh what do you think of the fact that cloud uses so many different strikes himself like a knight of the round here with omni slash that he gets omni slash even if he didn't have it the fact that it is not just one attack but many attacks and that he puts sephiroth to bed and oh that horrified face that sephiroth makes when his face is covered in blood after you defeat him with his now one hp um and the fact that this is inside of cloud ostensibly and that holy is there too and uh so what yeah what do you see in this final sequence that you cannot lose at this point i, I think that the the blood you know at the very end is is pretty shocking um I, I don't know that you know we have seen ev any evidence so far that sephiroth is like mortal you know in in any conventional sense so i think yeah. that that's pretty powerful right it's it's like his, um, uh, you know, sacrifice almost. Uh, it seems to be the image there, and his shock is pretty, you know, um, like it's it's it almost makes you sympathize with him, I guess, like because it seems to to be his um, his one, you know, last hope after all of his like grand plans have have bitten the dust is to, you know fight um one-on-one -on, -one on a level field right and it it goes so horribly wrong uh yeah he can maybe get one attack in on you and you know maybe that attack is pretty hefty but it's but it's nothing compared to what cloud has unleashed right in that moment and it is really strange because because you don't necessarily have to get omni slash through the whole you know battle 
around thing. Um, I didn't do it this time. I just didn't get around to it yet. But like, but the fact that you suddenly have that unlocked, um, it does seem to be like a kind of intuition, right? Or a kind of unconscious ability of clouds, which is um, suddenly sort of released in that moment, much like every other limit break so far in the game seems to be, right? Like kind of like his his initial one is. So it's almost like you start over from the beginning, but instead of one powerful strike, which is the braver, the one you initially have, it's like whatever, 13 or 15 or, you know, however many times it is that you hit him um, in a row. And, and that, you know, that kind of simultaneity uh, of, it, it breaks down the normal process of time, right? And of like the, t- the turn-based battle system and it's just like you you've broken free you've transcended that whole thing and it's just like <laughs> it's so cool right it because that that's so much more powerful than anything that you've been able to do up to that point like maybe you had a four times strike or or whatever maybe you had big brawl with uh sid which is pretty cool and you know pretty powerful but but nothing compared to omni slash right the the word itself right omni that that's the god prefix that's that's what you have gotten not because you are doing you know your calculations in the shinra basement (laughs) like sephiroth right but because you are you know making all of these um decisions to like help and save other people which you know is is obviously um what you're rewarded for in the end it's really gratifying yeah and that seems to connect with the theme you brought up last time about not only do you get better and better but you get better at getting better the farther you get into the game you develop more and more material you master material you can master material faster because you fight against a higher ap and experience giving um opponents with potentially triple times growth weapons and you've also developed that strategy ostensibly um and so you get better at getting better and so it's like you're better at using time too here whereas you start off sort of brave and unskilled now at this point my goodness you can hit like 15 times whatever it happens to be whatever the number is uh and each one of those attacks at least in the playthrough i was watching was like the first one was 9999 but the next several were like 7800 damage which are all attacks with the ultimate weapon of cloud which do more damage than sephiroth does it's like again there's that image of impotency with him and his delusion and his aggrandizing himself and his uh no no growth having um, Masamune and all mastered materia. It's that it's as if true mastery or like part of the purpose of life is to never be at that level where you wish to appear a master, but want to be a student um, because then you can continue to grow and do things that you would have never thought possible. And that seems to also be part of this. It's almost as if what Sephiroth is trying to do here is to pull a Voldemort to Quirrell uh, you know, of course, is, he is the sort of Luciferian figure of Hogwarts, and he tries to embody this weaker wizard. Well, it's almost as if this is Sephiroth's final hope. He is going to try and embody himself in you now. He is going to try and stick himself in you. Um, like the end of that old, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the movie where um, Denzel Washington hunts down a, a devil named Azazel, but at the end, uh, it like gets into a cat. It's like Sephiroth as long as somebody's around, if he's the figure of Lucifer or evil or a thought that tends towards evil or the corruption of the, of the world, and he can get into you like a snake in the grass, 
well then he can survive but uh, but uh cloud puts the kibosh on that quite quite a bit right yeah well that's i think uh, that's kind of interesting because that seems to be like what he learned from genova right like that's right. that's the process that like lured him to genova in the first place um he seems to be trying to kind of turn that around now and, and use that on someone else uh and you know she ultimately is is this kind of globe of uh you know weird um organic matter uh not not at all what her her initial effigy like looked like and not at all the kind of thing that you know sephiroth obviously sort of envisions himself becoming um her attacks are weirdly um like passive actually like i thought after a while i don't think she was doing anything like because i think she has those two tentacles and if you if you destroy those it doesn't seem like she can do much at all um for a number of turns until they get regenerated um so in a way that fight was kind of like anticlimactic right if if genova was kind of this terrifying thing all along has some of the coolest you know music in the game uh and then you just sort of easily steamroll uh through that that kind of first boss fight and i think the bizarro sephiroth form is, is kind of similar really like he even kind of looks like that that image of of genova that that you saw above nibelheim um and he's got like a bunch of different little pieces to him that you can destroy kind of freely before just going to town against his his core form um but that again it's sort of like he's luring you in at that point though cuz his final form or rather his safer whatever that's supposed to mean yeah i i agree like that that might be like a mistranslation or something some kind of pun but anyway like that's it's so much more dangerous than anything that's come before um that it's almost like he's kind of luring you in with those um those initial forms i, I don't know uh, right and that second form even literally has a sort of puppeteer on the top of it, right? That's very active. Whereas the larger figure seems to be, again, an effigy. And we're seeing these images of delusion and um, of posturing here, right? Very much like the Wizard of Oz and the Wizard uh, at the end. And often now he's represented in new movies, but of course in the classical one too. But if you, if you see uh, uh, Wicked, the Broadway play, he has a pretty impressive effigy there too. But like the idea is again that uh, Sephiroth is sort of posturing. He shows this big, large, green, sort of godlike figure. Um, but it's being controlled by this much smaller, uh, active, rational intellect sort of figure. And then he kind of shows himself for who he truly is. But again, it's in, you said, like a cerulean heavenscape. It's as if it is in your mind. And that is where Dante believes heaven truly is, the place where, you know, truth can be. And where's the only truth? Place that truth exists in the universe well that's the human mind of course um and so sephiroth shows himself for sort of the deformed thought he is not posturing towards a larger than life sort of god sephiroth figure made of green indicating sort of hope or regeneration there sort of an easter theme as well um but um yeah i agree and uh the genova figure herself with those tentacles right they, she can like bring you in or wrap you up and she, again, seems like a delusion figure, also like a figure of the earth in being spherical, like you said, but also having that that creepy naked effigy of like a half-formed woman as like 
she recalls to me sin from book two of Milton's Paradise Lost, which was beautiful and looked to Lucifer like a female version of him when he first courted her, but then became so horrifyingly ugly and very similar looking to Scylla of Scylla and Charybdis from the Odyssey with hounds around her that would actually retreat back inside of her to gnash her insides, the evils of the world. Um, sort of uh, that disgusting transformation. And as if sin or pulling Sephiroth away from his noble path is what Genova was. And that she has uh, shown herself for what she is now and sort of is passive, right? She allows people to sin and then casts Ultima surprisingly and painfully, but also that um, Sephiroth has been transformed or, or abominated, become ugly precisely because of his uh, sort of mixing with sin. And that this is a sort of powerful metaphor for the use of the rational intellect in the service of a lower ideal and how it can physically deform you and, and tries to <laughs> literally destroy the world in this case. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I think the, the echo there of a, of a kind of um, allegorical representation of sin seems pretty spot on. I find it interesting that there isn't really like a point at which Sephiroth seems to even want redemption, unless it's maybe, right, that final glimpse of him after, right. you know, Omni Slash has shown him the error of his ways. But it's, yeah, it seems like it's, uh, it's really not with, it's not in the realm of possibility for him to, um, you know, turn back, convert or, or something like that. And, and that's, I guess kind of what we see at the at the end of the game as well, right? Like there's there's nothing more that anyone can really do except kind of hope, right? In the in the end. Um you've kind of done everything you can. It's almost anticlimactic as the party's leaving, um, until everything starts to really uh kick off with holy. Uh, but you know, everyone's like, okay, well I guess we, you know, did our best, so let's get on out of here. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of why probably the game tries to prevent you from leaving the Northern Cavern because, you know, once you're there, there's a kind of um, motivation to actually get to the end of the game. And if you leave again and you start, you know, messing around trying to master a bunch of materia and this and that, well, you know, maybe you sort of lose the thread of the story. And a lot of people, I think, are, are disappointed by the ending of the game, actually. Um, I think that they, you know, expect more of a conclusion or like um, some kind of glimpse of like what happens with these characters after everything. But but the last glimpse you get of them is is really, you know, in this kind of chaotic, you know, everything's kind of hanging by a thread still. Um, you know, will Meteor destroy the world or not? We, we don't know uh, until at, at the very, very end of all the credits having rolled. You, you see like a hint that life in some form at least has has gone on um, but it's it's interesting that that you know lack of redemption for Sephiroth is kind of combined with this like lack of closure for the characters themselves and their individual stories instead what we get is this kind of more cosmic sense that you know in in an ultimate way um, life goes on I wonder what you, you know, thought of that yeah, no, that's really interesting because I, and 
Final Fantasy VIII and IX, you do have a redemption of the main villain at the end, Ultimatia in eight and of Kuja in nine. And in ten, you you actually have a pretty stark diversion from that. It's it's actually ten is a very powerful comment, I think, on what video games are uh, in themselves. And Seymour, a very interesting villain character though not the main one the main one being of course called sin so maybe we can get to that one at some point especially because you know it's sort of a beach-based game and i live in san diego um but I, I i just wanted to mention yes i i agree that it's stark that sephiroth doesn't have a redemption a redemptive uh, moment and that that shock does seem to be like shock at the fact that he lost finally that he just could not conceive of that that he seems to have been the one who was most deluded after all, even more than Cloud, who now has, who now, who knows who he is and does not have to try and be Sephiroth and in fact has become so much more than Sephiroth ever was when he was alive, precisely because of Sephiroth. And perhaps that is what's being realized by Sephiroth in that moment. But I agree that uh, Cloud has a way of being anticlimactic. Like when he says, let's mosey on and sits, uh, you know, swears and is like, can you please be a man about this for a moment? You know, play your role correctly. Um, that is fairly stark. And I, I guess I, I don't want to answer your question with a question, but I know that you've played Final Fantasy VI and I never beat that. And I think the main villain, or at least one of the major villains throughout is Kefka. And does he have any redeeming? And, you know, he's very much like an Iago character from Othello. Um, but uh, does he have a redemptive moment at the end of six? I, I do not remember the very end of that game. Honestly, I don't think I ever quite got to the end of it. And I, I, I would have said something about sin in Final Fantasy X. Like it, it clicked in my mind that that word is pretty important in that game. But I honestly can't remember the end of that one either. I don't think I ever beat that one. Like I don't, I don't generally actually get to the very end of these games. Well, um, you know that was that yeah. was what I wanted to mention. That 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 seems to be you know this is something we brought up much earlier on when Vince was still with us when we were talking about the playground back in Midgar, which gets destroyed at the end here. Like when is the good part of this game, right? Like I was talking about rushing through the game already, just trying to get for the ready for the podcast. And that, you know, you look back on the game and you're like, oh, I love that game. But it's like, which part did you love? Were you just rushing through it? You know, recently we've been going back through Harry Potter and it's like, man, this fifth and sixth book, Harry's mad a lot. A lot of people are mad a lot. And they're going through sort of nasty, lame moments in their lives. And it's like, but people are like, I love Harry Potter. It's like, yeah, but which moment particularly? It's as if, you know, life is made up of moments, like notes make up a song like planets make up a solar system like people make up a nation or a group and when it, you know you don't want to finish the game because you love the story it seems that you you just like being a part of something for that amount of time which is a comment made by tifa in advent children which comes after this game where she says man we were so strong in pursuit of that ideal so um I'm forgetting what question I'm answering particularly. Oh, yes, the redemption theme. Um, so uh, I find it interesting that Sephiroth doesn't get redeemed, but it does seem like humanity gets redeemed, but it is a little unclear whether they survive, <coughs> except for the fact that um, at the very, very end, even after you see ostensibly an old Red 13 and his two cubs, you hear children laughing. And so it's as if... Because I remember there was the potential that maybe humans 
would go unredeemed because they produced like a Sephiroth and he wanted to destroy the world. And maybe they would, you know, with Shinra and how people are, maybe to some extent humans needed to disappear. But I guess, and I just had this thought, it's almost as if the actions of Shinra through at least Rufus and your actions potentially led to this redemption. It's as if almost everybody who was real still had to come together in order to fight against this zombie dead thing that wanted to be reanimated in the world or wanted to destroy the world in order to become itself the new God, the supreme unified united God, which, you know, it's like so many of those themes of like a hive mind trying to collect the earth. I think Star Trek had that with the Borg. Um, It's almost as if it's an argument against, and you know, I'm not trying to make it political, but like communism where like, all people's diversity uh, collapses into a single entity or unity rather than all the diversity which does exist coming together in a single goal with an ultimate unity. It seems like that is literally the difference between like good and evil, a recognition of real diversity with a united aim against uh, sort of the evil of trying to collapse diversity in order to attain a false unitedness, a false unitedness in hell, right? Um, as Milton would say, or or in death, as Sephiroth wishes. Yeah, well, yeah, and you, I mean, the zombie sort of motif is pretty strongly present there towards the end. A lot of the enemies you're fighting are these, these zombie dragons, right? right? And uh, they're pretty creepy and they're, they're pretty powerful. And the thing that I think just one time when you first beat one, it will yeah. uh, do its uh, Pandora's box, which is like a mini version of of the supernova attack almost. It like transports yes. you out into outer space. There's this giant question mark. What does it mean? Apparently it's so uh, terrible that it like, you know, deals a lot of damage to your whole party. And it's, it's, I think, the final enemy skill that you can learn. So it's like, in some way, you are, are sort of prepared for, for that um, in, in a small kind of way. And, and of course, right, the, the, the upshot of that story of Pandora's box is that, you know, hope is the, the thing that stays there, um, that remains when all the evils are released, right, by, by Pandora's um, curiosity or whatever. So... I think that that, yeah, that last sort of um, sound effect of the laughter uh, does indicate that there there's hope for humanity um, and that it's it's through this kind of long process and the struggle, like you say, that you get to have that, that, that that's sort of real um, ultimately. That I love that you sort of observe a lot of the the final uh, moments of holy and meteor and then the live stream coming out you see it through the eyes of the children right who've been evacuated right. to calm um, and sort of like first one it's marlene i guess opens her uh casement and then all the other windows are thrown open and everyone's like watching and and seeing what's going to happen um I, I find that such a you sort of like this combination of like uh anxiety but also just like wonder, which to me is pretty much like what composes the the feeling of hope. <laughs> um, like, well, and it's almost like that's who we are too in this moment. Yeah, right, right. right. We're 
kids when we were first watching this ultimate play between good and evil. And first it was personified and then it was paralleled in the world. Sorry, I just wanted to add that in. I just thought that as you were saying though. Yeah, right. It's It seems like it's inviting you to sort of see that laughter at the very end, that wonder um, from the children as like something that you now are a protector of in some way, right? Like no matter how young you are as you play the game, you're put in this role of this um, more mature, you know, eventually, and more sort of integrated personality. And so when you've passed through that entire journey, then then you get to see those things and you get to sort of relish the fact that you've um, you've achieved this, right? And the ultimate, you know, um, the ultimate saving of the world is not, is still not like directly because of you, right? It's sort of, it causes you to, even in the midst of that sort of role of protector, you still have to be this kind of uh, humble servant of something greater, right? And I think that's important too. And it leaves you kind of wondering. And, and like, I think there's a case to be made that that's an important ambiguity at the end. Like it, it isn't supposed to have just one, um, you know, correct interpretation. I think it's supposed to imply in that sense, the way that each of these games is, you know, final in one way for its characters, its set of characters, but in another, it's just an iteration of this same kind of mythic story that gets played out over and over. Right. I, I, I mean, I completely agree. And so there were just, there were two images in the ending here. And so there, there are a couple interesting symbols in the ending. And I, I think it's interesting that the characters are speaking, but you can't hear what they're saying. Um, and you get some more cinematic or I think they're called cinematic bits uh, when you get to see the, the, the graphics so nice, but Oh yeah. Just to agree with you as well. It's as if, all these um, characters can do is fight the evil within themselves because ultimately that's what Cloud does, which he's been avoiding the entire time, except for when he was sucked into the life stream, right? He fights all these battles for the world or for money for other people, but he finally fights his own demon, Sephiroth at the end here. And then all they can do is hope. And it's as if, well, that's all you can do. Fight your own inner demons and hope because everybody else has to do the same thing if you're, you're going to win. But what did you think about seeing this hand of Ares and 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 cloud smile right after seeing uh to uh, sephiroth disapparate or di uh sort of disunify turn into many different parts you know blow apart and that's what safe or sephiroth did too he just sort of slowly fell apart or um i'm i'm not using the right word but it's a word for to go from one to many very slowly it's like he unwinds but he's not thread it's into parts in any case um, we see the hand of Ares, but it's actually Tifa's hand and she tries to save us, but then we end up having to save her, but she kind of saves herself because she, you know, we're holding her out with one hand and then she grabs the ledge, but you have to be pretty strong. And then at the very end, when Holy and the live stream seem to merge against Meteor, you see an image of, uh, Ares, just as you saw her look up at the very beginning of the game when she was again, looking at like this green and white Mako there um and so i was wondering what you thought of that if if a what part of this is that the replacement of the aries idea with a real person is what's necessary it's like the union confrontation with the anima uh you have to uh, 
you know, hone down your image of a lady in order to see the real lady in front of you in a relationship, but also that Aries is sort of here paralleled with Genova. If Genova is sort of a sinful, evil idea, then Aries is here sort of like a, the Virgin Mary, right? Like who, she who gives birth to true hope or to the idea that you should be following. Um, and so I, I wanted you to comment on those two ideas potentially. And what, you know, what did you think of seeing Aries in the end here? But again, like Sephiroth, sort of only like a dream figure, um, not, a, not embodied. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think that she is um, only implied in the hand, right? It, it's strongly implied, but again, it's only kind of implied there. Um, that, that is a really interesting moment, I think, for Cloud um, to sort of snap back into reality um, through that. Like, that could, that could almost be, say, the moment that he falls from um, up above, uh, down into the, the garden, right? Into the church, rather. And they first meet, right? And she's like, hey, like, hey, are you okay? Right? That that could be a kind of flashback to that too. So I think that that flashback at the very end um, really does a nice job of driving home that idea, that same thing that that Omni Slash does about like, you know, the final thing is also the first thing, right? It's like the return to the origin in a way. Um, and I think that that the happens in. In a way, it happens with the, uh, you know, after every bit of, um, of you know, seeing the kids uh, and seeing the remains of Midgar, then you just have this kind of like starscape that you're sort of just like traveling through. Um, that that's a lot like the very very beginning of the game too, right? Um, with Ares, you're you're now in her position of watching the kind of um, play of of Mako or maybe it's the stars, it's kind of unclear, right? But I think that, you know, again, Cloud has come a long way. Um, that image, that memory is still with him. It's not like it's totally, you know, cut away from him or something, but it's now, I agree, like sort of, it's been uh, embodied in a different fashion by, by Tifa. And their kind of mutual rescuing of each other here seems pretty appropriate, I guess. Um, it, it's like uh, a superhuman feat in a way, right? But it's like she also kind of makes it possible <laughs> to believe right. that they're, uh, you know, actually going to um, be able to uh, climb out again from, from this uh, catastrophe. They're uh, in it together. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, you know... It's great that she hangs back with Cloud, you know, when he goes on this kind of uh, final leg of the journey. Um, she's she's still there for him, and that I think is another kind of image of hope or something like that. Like, in in, in what sense you can be active? It, it seems to be a kind of loyalty. Um, it's not it's not the same thing as just sort of saying like, oh, you know, like it's gonna be okay. Right. Uh, it's it's a more kind of active stance. Um, in, yeah. In the very, you know, pretty pretty dramatically so. Yeah, and it's almost as if it's it's an it's a motif of marriage, like Penelope and Odysseus, but also uh, taking back Satan and Sin and how they produce death in Book Two of the 
uh, Paradise Lost. So they'd done it earlier, but you find the sound in book two of Paradise Lost. But then like the difference between having a false idea of the feminine or a, a or being wedded to an idea is that that idea will not keep you from falling and it often will cause you to fall. Whereas what Tifa does here is she keeps, she almost pulls Cloud down as he pulls her up, but then he, she ultimately pulls herself up, which is what allows him to pull up, which is also an interesting sort of relationship to the idea of like Eve eating the apple of consciousness and then Adam catching up later. And, you know, Peterson makes the comment that women probably became conscious before men and they helped to build that consciousness into men. And you sort of see that repeated here, both through the figure of Ares and through uh, Tifa, but more particularly through Tifa, because as a real person, she can give real help in a much better way than an idea, potentially a beautiful but untrue idea can't. Um, and, you know, potentially that's part of what marriage is, too. You have to recognize the hard truths through the gate of horn, not just the beautiful lies through the gate of ivory, which seems to be the direction that um, Sephiroth took, thinking that he was immortal or perfect in an Akalayan sort of way. But I also wanted to ask you if you thought it was symbolic, the fact that this Ares figure at the very, it's like the very last screen, I think, before you get the sort of epilogue of Nanaki or Red 13, again, implied uh, as an old uh, Red 13 monster, whatever that species is called, cat, cat leopard dog, red things with Native American piercings and uh, headbands, um, whatever it is. Um, uh, yeah, I think he might have a species name. I don't know. Maybe Hojo did something with him at some point. I, I, I'm not exactly sure. In any case, uh, she, she looks from down to up, just as she did in the beginning. And that, that just strikes me as sort of like the look that you have after you finish a prayer. It's as if she looks up from a prayer and opens her eyes. It's as if that is the look of hope when like you, you imagine something and then it happens. And then it's like, that just finishes off the opposites, uh, Cloud and Sephiroth, Cain and Abel. That uh, Sephiroth, you know, because of his hopelessness or his despair or his cynicism, is let down. Um, whereas Cloud, who sort of lets things play out but also gives his best, um, I don't know, embodies hope through his actions. And it, it is this, this hope, ultimately, that saves the world. Yeah, I yeah I agree. I I think it does seem significant that we so often see Eris in a kind of attitude of prayer, um, you know, from the very start. Uh, then you know, in her death scene, she seems to be praying or something, and and yeah, at the end, um, this image of her seems to be kind of the personification at that point of of the planet's um, blessing on. Uh, I guess like those who <laughs> have not given up, you know, who have not been destroyed already um, and who've, you know, taken certain measures to um, protect the innocents, right. That get them out of um, Midgar. I, I think the, I think it goes back to the, the point you made at the beginning too, about how sort of like the different directions um, from which you, you, you stand, right, yeah. are so important for determining where you're going to end up, right? So she's, she's grounded, and yet she also is, like, aspiring. Um, the, the nature of the promised land, uh, in that sense, seems to be this kind of, uh, we get, like, a kind of glimpse of it at the very end, right? Um, 
what it might look like. Uh, but I think that the truer sense in which there's the promised land is is that of you know that kind of peace that uh, Cloud seems to find in the end there, where he's he's sort of has his memory or maybe vision of Eris giving her benediction, and then he has his you know reality of um, rescuing and being rescued by Tifa. And, well, I I think it's I don't know much about the Advent Children and the other versions of the game that they went on to make, but I, I think that the sort of ambiguities that are there at the end, which all tie back to stuff from earlier in the game, are, are really well done, actually, and um, really leave you with sort of appropriate degrees of, of questioning and also, like, satisfaction. So I agree that they... And I think that they almost... From the reception of Final Fantasy VIII, I think that shows just how well they hit it for Final Fantasy VII and the fact that they didn't need to make an Advent Children. Because in eight, they really overdo the ending, right? They make it like double the length of this one. And they show you the resolution of every single character. And they really emphasize friendship because people loved the characters so much in Final Fantasy VII. But I think, you know, part of what Final Fantasy VII teaches you to deal with is that ambiguity and that you can't get past certain things and that certain truths just hold. Like, you know, the amount of time you have to spend in this final cave in order to, to beat the game and is is tremendous and the amount of time you have to spend training before it to be guaranteed in a good situation to beat the game is also tremendous and you you know you can't you can't hide from that fact and certainly i couldn't hide from that fact today but one of the ambiguities i wanted to ask you about um uh, is that what do you think of the destruction of mitgar and the fact that that is our home city at first do you, do you see this? And I'm just sort of coming to this idea right now as sort of an sort of you can never go home again idea once your world has been expanded and that like there, there will be no return to the initial garden because the garden is being destroyed here. Or is it even more? Is it like uh, Shinra itself was uh, a mistaken or sinful idea that has been uh, washed from the earth. Yeah, I think yeah the way that then I think it is Red Thirteen or Nanaki who says something like you know it's the opposite is happening right like Holy is pulling Meteor down to Midgar, um, and so it's like the process of stopping Meteor seems to be like connected with that destruction of Midgar. Um, again, I go back to that that sort of look on Sephiroth's face when when he's yes. finally defeated. Like it seems like kind of the same idea there that like the thing that he thought to harness turns out to be um, precisely that which you know is his undoing or, or something like that. Um, that that's such a powerful, I think, um, like representation of of the idea of forgiveness as well or or sort of like how you actually can can achieve peace or or at least nonviolence it seems to be that kind of like embrace of the of the the thing that's um so so destructive right and like allowing it to sort of um play its its part until you know 
up up until it, it sort of exhausts itself in a way. I think we saw that, like you mentioned at, at the very end of the fifth book of Harry Potter when he's so angry, right? And Dumbledore just like allows him to to be that um, and, and like apologizes, right? And, and And so I think that sort of thing Again, you don't see it directly with Sephiroth, but but between the kinds of images that you you do get, I think that's pretty strongly implied. I I think we've kind of danced all around along ar around this idea that there's like a a mixing of of mythological sort of threads in the game, and and I I mean the the holy <laughs> materia is like a pretty strong indicator that that some kind of uh you know forgiveness or like transcendent peace of some kind like that it can't really be articulated maybe is 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 going to be the the decisive factor um in in any sort of fusion of of mythological um traditions right and the way that this game does it I, yeah it, it's very very interesting how it it entails the destruction of the home that you you sort of set out from and the, the transformation of it into something very different yeah, and you're just making me think, I mean, of course there's like a Tower of Babel element here, even more a Sodom and Gomorrah element here, that the place of sort of sin is being raised to the ground, purged even by this fiery meteor. But also interesting that Holy and the live stream come again, bottom up, like you were saying, in this aspiring way out from the earth as if from the hearts of man, because it's as if, and it's interesting here because it's like Holy is bluish white and live stream is green and they're fighting red and that's very similar to the colors that are symbolic in star wars right the dark side has red lightsabers and the light side has green and blue and somebody might mention mace windows purple but uh samuel L. jackson just said that he was only doing this if he got a purple lightsaber which i think is pretty cool but the original colors were green and blue and so uh it's as if part of what the comment here that's being made is not using technology for power in a way that sort of destroys the fabric of the world or eats at the fabric of the world, this corruption of, of a life stream into Mako is like a corruption of the trust or faith that exists between people, which is true power. It's as if there's a replacement with the reliance on power or technology, sort of an Iron Man and again, Luciferian, and again, Miltonian Luciferian idea that if you are just strong enough, you can have everything. When in reality, you have to accept your vulnerability and be weak enough or accept your weakness enough to understand that you need to trust and have faith in people around you in order to have the strongest possible team. Um, and that it is precisely through accepting that vulnerability rather than striving towards invulnerability. And I think this played out also in the last fight where you have to be vulnerable no matter how strong you are. Um, that that can save the world. Yeah, definitely. I I think that yeah the the ending of this game really doesn't um, doesn't let you sort of think that you're all you know all that you have is is greater power. Um, it shows you sort of what that is uh, in service of. And again, like the. Uh, the things that you can do in this game are not limited to that, of course. Like it, there's lots of things you can do beyond um, defeating Sephiroth. Besides which, you know, uh, or, or rather, next to which he's he's not even that that scary, right? But but in terms of like thematic power, um, he's to to sort of engage with and 
and really think through what's going on here at the end, I think is the uh, the ultimate challenge this game presents. So I'm, I'm really happy that we have made it all the way through it. Um, and I, I guess if we go straight into our next game, um, we'll, we'll see this same kind of motif from a very different perspective. Yeah. One thing just personally, because this was always supposed to be sort of my union individuation process, which I think, you know, has been something we've both been doing because something we, I think we learned from Blade Runner is that the ultimate realization is that it's a non-Sephirothian or non-Luciferian one, that it's that you're not special. It's that every everybody can bloom in their own unique way and be differentiated, sure, but that's for everybody to do. And again, you know, getting into the Harry Potter that we're reading now, six, it is precisely Voldemort's desire when he's a young Tom Riddle to be different from everybody else that leads him to becoming a Luciferian figure in that world. The same way the Sephiroth here doesn't even want to die, wants to be different from everybody else. But something we have to realize is that it is by uniting with other people, by accepting that we have the same experiences that as they do, that we become strong. And something that this, this process has enabled me to do, and perhaps you did this earlier in your life or have been doing this too, through your own personal projects and the projects we share, which are, you know, manifold, is that it's allowed me to get that Sephiroth out of my head as an ideal. Um, it's as if I lost that final battle when I first played this game, and he got to live inside me. And I thought that like pursuing invulnerability or something like immortality or some, some false dream ungrounded in the reality of the human condition, which is, you know, of course, death. So you better do some good things while you're alive so that you can transmit something good to the world because you are living your story at this very moment. Um, and so it's as if, um, besides getting through this game and this major achievement that we've achieved that, you know, perhaps only we will ever know about, <laughs> um, that um, it's allowed me finally to put a Genova Sin Sephiroth idea that I carried with me for a long time because, you know, I didn't know the best stories when I was young. I didn't read the, you know, the Old and the New Testament or hear them growing up. I didn't know about Homer and the Odyssey and Virgil until college, you know, or the great philosophers, which is also why I'm happy to be teaching these sorts of texts to younger people than I was, just to give them that strength and to give them uh, true ideas towards which to strive, which have been, you know, helping people since the beginning of time, as far as we know. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really beautiful sort of outcome of the game. I don't know that they, you know, initially making it would ever have intended that this be part of what it was for. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but whatever the intention of the designers, I think the the effect of it is definitely one of sort of opening up, um, sort of challenging things about one's psyche, uh, encountering them, um, wrestling with them, right, and and hopefully at least ultimately uh, overcoming them. I think you know it's very possible uh, that I would never have gotten interested in some of the, you know, really, truly great literature, if I hadn't been inspired by games like this um, at a more formative point in my life. So, yeah, I do hope that, you know, uh, you can sort of more directly engage kids with, with great books, but I think 
it's not a bad way to do it to to get them to play these kinds of games first um, and sort of uh, show them that there's stuff there's stuff out there that's that's worth wrestling with. I agree. Uh, the the angel that Jacob fights against, like the 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 god the morphine god Proteus that Menelaus must wrestle with, seems capable of taking precisely the form that somebody that is most difficult for somebody to overcome, sort of like the boggart in Harry Potter. You see there's a theme across all literature and time and media just from there that whatever it is that you, and you know, even in CrossFit, your weaknesses will come up in competition, whatever it is that you, that is the hardest fight for you, you need to fight. And you know, mine was with pride and arrogance taking on the figure of Sephiroth. And it's interesting to what extent, you know, doing a, a podcast um, is a, a work of humility here. And, you know, perhaps the way down is the way up, Wes. And that's what we've been doing all along with these spirals down and up in this episode and uh, in the ones to come. Yes, yes. I hope so. <laughs> I hope yeah. so. Uh, so for next, our, should we take a break next week or should we jump right into uh, another world-saving sort of adventure? What do you think? Yeah, so... So I'm almost wondering, so it's been a little while since we've watched a movie. I don't know if you, uh, you know, uh, and maybe we can talk about this over the coming week, but I, I envision a few different things. Maybe we could talk to somebody about their experiences with Final Fantasy VII, either a scholar or a friend. Maybe oh, we right. could watch like a movie or two or like a mini series or something kind of simple. Um, uh, I do have to go buy an N64 and get this game. I don't envision that being very difficult, and I'll do some research into it after this but it's just going to take a little bit of, of time. Um, right on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good but to Yeah. Me. But uh, I'm just very glad to be uh, keeping this party going. And so yeah, definitely. And if Vince is out there, we want you back. However we can get you whenever. <laughs> yes. I, I imagine he's uh, doing his thing somewhere. And uh, yeah, we wish you well, Vince. Yeah, well, 29 episodes into this, we come to the conclusion. And uh, incredible work, Wes. I, <clears throat> I guess at some point we're going to have to turn this into a book or something. So I hope so, yeah. Um, that will be yet another, I think, element in this ongoing project. Um, and if and when we do, um, you know, this, this form of it will still be out there, which is, which is cool as well this kind of uh, rough and ready conversation, um, digging in and exploring topics that I think are just, they're, they're sort of endlessly um, fascinating. But I, I definitely never intended or expected to like play this game in this detail again. So it's been a really fun and really interesting experience. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, on to the next adventure. Okay. On to the next quest. Right on.